I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And climate change is a pressing issue that requires both our attention and our action. And the environment is important because, well, largely because we only have the one. But why does so much of modern day environmental activism seem to only come from one side of the aisle? Our guest this week offers a conservative case for solving climate change. Quill Robinson serves as the Vice President of Government Affairs for the American Conservation Coalition. After graduating from the University of Washington in 2018, he spent a year in Germany as a fellow with the Congress Bundestag Youth Exchange for Young Professionals. Quill lives in Washington, D.C., but is a proud son of Seattle and enjoys escaping to the Pacific Northwest to hike, ski, and fly fish as often as possible. Quill, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So to start us off and to kind of orient those who might not be familiar with the American Conservation Coalition, I'd like to read a description from its website. It's a little bit long, but I feel like it's instrumental in helping people understand what ACC is kind of all about. Quote, the American Conservation Coalition is a nonprofit organization dedicated to mobilizing young people around environmental action through common sense, market-based, and limited government ideals. ACC was founded in June 2017 by a group of millennials who saw an ideological gap in the environmental movement preventing necessary bipartisan action. ACC believes economic and environmental success go hand in hand, and that everyone should feel empowered to take a seat at the table in discussions concerning conservation, clean energy, sportsmen's rights, agriculture, climate, and much more. ACC seeks to activate young people that are tired of partisan inaction on the grassroots, state, and federal levels, bringing forth prosperous action on environmental issues that impact us all. End quote. So, from your introduction, it's clear that you have a love for nature, but when did you first become passionate about the cause of environmental conservation, and what brought you to your current position within ACC? As you said in the initial introduction, I, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Seattle. I didn't really realize this until later in my life, but I was very privileged to grow up in a place and in a family where we spent a lot of our time outdoors. That was just sort of part of the culture that I grew up in. And so valuing nature, spending time in nature, protecting nature was something that was just sort of intrinsically in me. It was a value that I was instilled with. And I actually never expected that it would be a big part of my career path. I, I was really interested in politics and policy and particularly international relations, which is what I studied at University of Washington. But I sort of saw my passion for, for nature and protecting nature and then my interest in politics converge um, my senior year of college. That was not something that I expected, but I'm very glad that it did work out that way. In, in terms of how I, I came to ACC, I guess the, the story starts in 2016. I was looking for something to do over the summer while I was in college, and I worked on, I decided to work on a ballot initiative campaign in Washington state. It was called I-732, Initiative 732, and it was a revenue neutral carbon tax initiative. And I, again, I, I had not thought that I was going to go into the environmental field. I knew that I was interested in politics. But I saw an opportunity, I saw a really interesting thing that sort of saw those two things converge. And what it, I, the reason I was attracted to this campaign is essentially it was a proposal that had bipartisan support and seemed like a practical way to address this issue of protecting the environment, specifically address the issue of climate change. I joined the campaign. I knocked on thousands of doors. I was, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed college student looking forward to, to changing the world and addressing this issue of climate change, which I cared a lot about. That shifted my politics pretty radically after um, after that campaign, because what happened, I mean, 2016 was a, a pretty crazy year in terms of politics altogether. But my perception of who the quote unquote good guys and bad guys were on the issue of the environment and climate change specifically was significantly altered. And, and what I mean by that is I went into it thinking that, okay, so Democrats, liberals, progressives, or the left of center care about the environment and want to do something about climate change. Republicans, big business and oil companies, not so much. But this bipartisan initiative, and again, that was something that attracted me to it. I was like, that's kind of unique. It ended up losing. And it didn't end up losing because of the big bad oil companies. It ended up losing because there was this weird fracture in the environmental left that led to, you know, a lot of these environmental groups that you'd actually that are, are quite notable, like the, the Sierra Club and also some Bill McKibben's 350.org, they actually ended up opposing this initiative. And so that was just mind blowing to me. The initiative ended up failing. President Trump became president. And I, I felt pretty politically homeless after that. 
And I was very skeptical of what I saw on the left of sort of putting activism over action and what I saw as sabotaging a, a real opportunity to make progress on this issue of climate change. So I left that experience in 2016 feeling very politically homeless. And then I met my uh, my friend Benji at University of Washington, who was a fellow student in 2017. And he just started this organization called the American Conservation Coalition. And essentially, it was to give young folks sort of in the middle and on the right of center a voice on the environment, because we that he realized that the environment, as I'd also seen in 2016, and sort of come from this context, that the environment was seen as a left of center, a liberal issue. We saw that if we wanted, we realized that if we wanted to see real progress on the issue, we'd have to have both sides of the table. And so at that point, I wouldn't have called myself a conservative, not a Republican, but I was very politically disillusioned and highly, highly skeptical of the folks on the left of center who I had thought spoke for people who cared about the environment and wanted to address the issue of climate change. And so that is what brought me to ACC in 2017. I, I ended up joining the organization just a couple months after Benji and, and Danielle started it. One of the vital things that I feel you were touching on is in regards to people on the left do X and people on the right do Y, it often can mask what is a very diverse group of people who have competing interests, right? Like the idea that everyone on the left is automatically for a thing and everyone on the right is automatically against a thing is kind of a false binary, right? You, it sounds like you would have identified a few years ago as being on the left, if I'm understanding that right. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. I, it was farmer's market on Saturdays, NPR on Sundays, and <laughs> you know, I'd never met a Republican before. Like I grew up in a very, very progressive context. Definitely. Right. And so the larger point, I think, and I think this is instructive. And one of the reasons that I initially even started this podcast is, you know, I still to this day consider myself center left, although I feel like that old, what Reagan adage, you know, the, I didn't leave the democratic party, the democratic party left me. I don't feel like it's exactly the same, but I think the larger point here is, is that you as Quill, your interests and the things that you cared about didn't necessarily change, but your political affiliation, if it did change, did. Right. And so I think that that's, what's really important. And one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on to discuss ACC, because I feel often when we caricature either side, right, whether it's about the environment or any other issue as one side being for and the other side being against it masks a lot of diversity of thought that exists within those kind of false choices does that make sense yeah completely and i i think that like you said i came from you know i came from the left that was my culture that i came from but when i got skin in the game on this issue that i cared a lot about i realized that the people who I thought were, were going to be working on it were actually working on it in a substantive way. So yeah, in a, we, in a way, the Democratic Party left me. But I also found a set of values and a community that I felt could effectively address this issue. I still don't feel a very strong affiliation with the Republican Party. I certainly don't with the Democratic Party. But you know, in my sort of conception of small C conservatism, I see a path to solutions on these issues that I care about. And you know, the environment and, and poverty and a number of other issues that are you know traditionally considered left are actually the things that get me up in the morning and get me really excited and wanting to lean in. But the way that I see that we can best address them are what I would consider small C conservative. Yeah. And I totally get that. I think the most important thing, and I imagine you would agree, is that values in and of themselves are bipartisan. It's just that the ways in which we attempt to solve the problems that we care about might fall on the left to right spectrum. But the values of wanting to, let's say, conserve the environment, that you can find a lot of agreement between conservatives, quote unquote, and quote unquote, liberals around wanting to do that. It just tends that the solutions tend to fall on the right or the left. And that's just a point <laughs> that's a, a little orthogonal to our conversation, but I wanted to hammer home because it's a kind of thinking that I'm trying to disabuse myself of. And I think it's an important point. So we touched a little bit upon the point I'm about to make before we started recording, but I also kind of just want to put it out there for the listener. So when we have problems in our own lives, let's say like, oh, I'm having problems with my boyfriend or girlfriend, or my car isn't working, or how do I paint my house, or I'm looking to expand my horizons. Do you have any book recommendations for me, right? We never go to the same exact friend or family member to solve or give guidance on every single one of our problems. But oftentimes when it comes to politics, if you closely align with a political party, you may find yourself only going to the same quote unquote friend over and over and over again to 
provide solutions for important problems, whether it's the environment or any other issue. And one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on specifically, Quill, and I'm kind of providing a little bit of lead up here to the fact that some of my questions are going to feel oppositional, is because I think that for us to have real solutions to problems, we have to have a lot of quote unquote friends that we can go to for advice. And so whether it's on the conservative side or the liberal side, if you find yourself, general you, not you, Quill, if you find yourself going to the same exact friend over and over and over again for solutions to all of your problems, you can miss a lot of really potentially great advice and solutions. And I think for a functional American society that can oftentimes feel quite dysfunctional, it feels like we go into our own little silos and we disabuse ourselves of any potential solutions that might exist on the other side. So the reason that some of these questions I'm about to ask might feel a little bit wary or oppositional, I am actually in favor of the goal that ACC is trying to achieve because I think that having solutions from both sides is really important. So that being said, let's start by defining our terms, ACC champions, limited government ideals. And I feel phrases like this can be a little slippery. Even earlier, you mentioned carbon tax, right? So similar to how during the Democratic primaries last year, Medicare for all could mean anything from eliminating private health insurance altogether to Medicare for all who want it, but you can keep your existing private plan if you're happy with it. Limited government feels like a similar phrase to me. I can get five different answers if I ask five different conservatives what it means. So what does limited government mean to ACC and to you? And how does its definition drive its goals and values? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I think that in our our sort of populist age and you know moment of evolving political identities, it's very hard to to pin down the exact definition of these terms that we hear thrown around a lot. You know, the way that I would I would define limited government is a preference for private sector leadership for businesses to address problems, a preference for subsidiarity and addressing things at a lower level or a more local level than necessarily kicking it up to the very top in terms of the federal government and awareness of the tendency to say only the government can solve this, the government in terms of the federal government. And so I, I think those sort of things combine to uh, inform that preference for limited government. Understood. I suppose my, my follow-up question would be, how do executive level federal organizations like the Environmental Protection Agency or the U.S. Department of Energy factor into ACC's view of limited government? Is that considered limited government? Because many, a few decades ago, right before these organizations, these, these executive level organizations existed, would have viewed that as government overreach or big government, right? But now we look at those organizations and we feel that, or I can't speak for you, but many people feel that those are sensible organizations that are combating potential private sector overreach. So in regards to agencies like that, how does that factor into ACC's view of limited government? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the EPA was founded by a Republican, Richard Nixon. So I think that, you know, that's often something that, you know, when I'm talking to my friends who, who tend to be on the left is, you know, when I say limited government or small government, that absolutely doesn't mean no government. Of course, there's an important role for, for the government to play and for those agencies to play in terms of addressing issues like climate change. I guess, you know, to, to make it a little bit more concrete, I, I think that it, the, like, take the, the Department of Energy, right? We support and we've supported legislation which supports the Department of Energy investing into in early stage technologies and energy technologies that are not yet marketable and scalable. So I, I think that that's, that's a role that we'd like to see, but we wouldn't want to see the Department of Energy throwing billions of dollars at a particular technology, which is already scaled and doing well in the private sector and on the open market. So it's, again, it's not so much no government or has to be as, as minimal as possible, but it's a preference for it's saying, you know, what is the specific role that the government can fill here and then leave the rest to the private sector. And, you know, not just when I say the private sector, I don't just mean big business and corporations. I mean, NGOs and local groups and, you know, those little platoons that, that Burke likes to talk about that are so important in addressing the, these sorts of issues. And particularly when it comes to an issue like climate change, which is global, it is a massive issue. There's an important role for the federal government to play and for these agencies to play. But sometimes they actually make it harder for us to address these issues. And when there's particular things that can be addressed better on a, on a local scale. That makes sense. I think that's a coherent definition. To continue to kind of define our terms, another important tenet of ACC is market-based solutions. So 
I want to better understand how ACC defines market-based, right? Because the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, which is the successor to the Pew Center on Global Climate Change, it works closely with city, state, national governments, along with Fortune 500 companies. Champions market-based solutions is a key part in the puzzle of fighting climate change. But it defines market-based approaches as including things like a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade program, citing cap-and-trade programs for sulfur dioxide, which is the cause of acid rain created by a bipartisan Congress and signed by George H.W. Bush in 1990. So states have since passed their own cap-and-trade programs, including California and your home state of Washington. Do these programs fall under ACC's definition of market-based solutions, and are these programs the organization supports? Yeah, so a cap and trade program and a carbon tax are definitely examples of market-based solutions, right? They foster competition rather than just picking winners and losers. Our position on those two particular policies has a lot to do with the political sort of political considerations right now. And what I mean by that is a big focus of ACC is taking pragmatic and incremental steps to address environmental issues. And within the context of, of climate change, we don't see those as the best opportunities you know, ahead of us right now. And so those are things that we're not focused on. We're, we're neutral on them. And there's lots of other organizations that do focus on those market-based solutions. So that's, you know, those two things are not things that we are actively advocating on. Those are good examples of market-based solutions. And so what does market-based solutions mean to us and sort of in our context? Again, that sort of ties into what I was mentioning before around the government playing a role with early stage technologies, but just sort of looking at energy broadly. We don't think that folks in Washington, here in Washington, D.C. necessarily know what the energy technology that is going to rise to the top, what that is going to be 10 years, 15, 20 years down the line. So to us, market-based means a preference for competition and for the private sector businesses to take a leadership role on this. Because we don't think that the, you know, the taxpayers, we should be underwriting best guesses. And we think that, you know, when it comes to something as complex as climate change and as complex as how we provide energy and power America, that competition and innovation and that sort of environment that is fostered in the private sector is actually most conducive to seeing the results that we that we want to see. Yeah, I'm 100% with you there around the idea of government picking winners and losers, because the main problem there with picking a winner or a loser when you don't yet know what the winner is going to be, it reminds me of an article that I just recently read, a rather tragic one on Alzheimer's research. I can't remember all the fine details because a a lot of it is a little bit wonky for me, but basically it goes back to around 1990. Leading group of scientists believed that they had discovered what the cause of Alzheimer's was. And in a benevolent effort to try and pursue the cure for Alzheimer's as quickly as possible, they not only dedicated all of their attention to this one potential cause, but actively encouraged journals and funding organizations to disregard any other scientists who had competing ideas of what was causing Alzheimer's. Flash forward 30 years later, it turns out that that idea of what that specific cause was that was causing Alzheimer's might not be really as rock solid as they thought it was. But for 30 years, they were disincentivizing any other research into what is a real problem for many Americans, elderly and otherwise. And I think that's a similar problem that you articulated well here with the government choosing winners and losers. Well, what if the government were also getting involved with things like Alzheimer's or cancer research, and it led to preventable deaths or preventable disease? So I think that's a real issue. But One of the things that you mentioned was how ACC promotes pragmatic and incremental steps. So I think the thing that might flash in listeners' minds when they hear about incremental and pragmatic is a lot of times when we talk about climate change, and I think that there is truth in this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, the time for climate change action is now, and that the threat of climate change and its effects is real. I imagine, and I don't want to put words in ACC's mouth, that they don't necessarily share the idea of, let's say, an AOC or a Greta Thunberg that in nine years we're going to reach a red line. Perhaps ACC does. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But how urgent does ACC, do you feel that the cause of climate change is? Where might the red line or point of no return be? And how can incremental pragmatic solutions get us to where we need to be fast enough to beat this crisis? Totally. One of my favorite questions. I I think, you know, in terms of what AOC and Greta Thunberg and and some of these other folks more in the sort of progressive environmental space have said, 
a lot of their statements don't line up to the science. And I think that that's really counterproductive because I think that we have a, a, a duty to be honest to people about what the science says. That being said, very serious problem that we face in terms of climate change. And I think that we have an imperative to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in an ambitious fashion and also prepare, you know, the other part of this, right? Like, so it's both mitigation and adaptation, prepare these communities for the changes that are already happening from climate change. And I think that that's quite an urgent thing that we need to do. And the, the science indicates that. There's certainly going to be more information that comes out in, in the years and decades to come about how well we are doing and what we need to do more of and, and that sort of thing. And we will adjust accordingly. But I actually think that the doom and gloom, hair on fire rhetoric that we hear is really counterproductive because I actually take, you know, what, what, I, what I say is like, I take climate change far too seriously to wait for a Green New Deal. I think that it's incredibly urgent. I think we think we need to be acting now. And so what does that look like for ACC? This kind of snuck in in the end of year omnibus package, which is just <laughs> a code word for when Congress waits around and doesn't actually do their job and then throws in everything into a bucket and passes it at the end of the year. There was the most significant piece of climate legislation in over a decade. That happened at the end of this year. It was called the Energy Act of 2020. And that's something that ACC activists were sending emails on, writing op-eds about, reaching out to their members of Congress and posting on social media about and, and pushing Congress to do. And the Energy Act of 2020 included investment in battery storage, which is crucial to unlocking the power of renewable energy. It included investment in carbon capture technology and uh, small modular reactors, investment in clean energy technology, a whole bunch of other things, which will substantively result in lowering greenhouse gas emissions. And that happened. Folks across the political spectrum, or mostly in the in the center, but you know, folks on both sides of the aisle recognize that this was the biggest step in terms of climate change that we've taken in over a decade. And the reason that I bring that up is: is it an incremental step? Is it, go, is it yes? It's not going to fix climate change, but we moved the ball down the field here in a really significant way. One of the unfortunate things about the Energy Act of 2020, or almost unfortunate things that happened, is you had over 300 progressive environmental groups saying, actually writing letters to members of Congress saying, oppose this, it doesn't do enough. And so that kind of goes back to my experience in 2016, where you hear a lot of the folks who are most vocal about climate change often oppose incremental action. And my perspective is, and ACC's perspective, we'd rather be working on solutions today and taking bites out of this problem and taking steps forward and, and lowering greenhouse gas emissions on an incremental basis than waiting for a silver bullet. Because we're wasting time if we're waiting for a silver bullet. And so that's kind of our approach. We have some great wins on our record that have resulted in greenhouse gas emissions being lowered. And, and that's really our approach. And we're, so we're not going to wait around for the quote unquote perfect solution or a silver bullet. Yeah, I think the hunt for a silver bullet is one of folly. I think as you so wonderfully articulated, solving a problem like this requires a bunch of different approaches. And I don't want to hammer this point too much because I think there's a lot of other fantastic things we can discuss. But regarding the Energy Act of 2020, which sounds like it accomplishes a lot of fantastic things and topics that I'm in favor of, I think carbon capture is one of many different things that can be pursued. And I had a nuclear engineer on this podcast a few episodes ago because I think nuclear power is awesome and, and often undervalued. So investment in small modular reactors is a good thing or investment in battery storage. I'm a huge Tesla fan. That's great. But isn't that in some ways picking winners and losers in the same way that had the Energy Act of 2020 been written by a different committee or a different group of people, it would have favored other things like solar or whatever the causes of, let's say, the left, quote unquote, might be. Whenever legislation is written, isn't the government picking winners and losers? And how does that relate to I suppose what you said earlier about not wanting the government to pick winners and losers when the Energy Act of 2020 clearly did. Good point. And so actually what a lot of these bills did, the ones that we supported, and obviously everything in there we didn't support. Because again, you know, we're, we're an organization that we're going to focus on that incremental progress. And if there's some stuff in there that we don't like, you know, on net, if it's good, we're probably going to support it. And that's, you know, that's just kind of how we go about this problem, this problem. But a lot of those bills, and I don't want to, you know, too far into depth, you know, into the focusing on what each one of those bills does, but most of it focuses on the really early stage technology. So you'll notice that I didn't mention wind or solar power because those were not a big focus of the Energy Act or what we were actually, you know, advocating for, because those are technologies that are already scaled and the private sector is 
going gangbusters on and they're they're all over the country right now and they're they're profitable and that's those are technologies that have already really taken off so the ones that i did mention that we did support as part of the energy act are more of those early stage technologies that could use a little boost from department of, of energy investment program or something along those lines that will help it get to that stage where it is competitive in the private sector. And so that's why carbon capture, battery storage, small modular reactors, those sorts of things are the ones that I listed rather than renewable technologies that are actually scaled already and would be not actually, that you'd be picking winners and losers, you know, supporting a technology that is already competitive. So that's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a distinction there. And it's, there's certainly a gray area. That's kind of how we approach that issue. Yeah, I appreciate you following up on that. And the progression of solar and how far its costs have come down in just a decade have blown everyone's expectations out of the water. It's really a one of the biggest technological successes that I've ever witnessed. I think the cost decrease has outpaced projections by decades, which is amazing. It's remarkable. It's a testament to the power of competition, I think. You know, when you have all of these different companies trying out different technologies and different methods, and they, there's a financial reward in, in terms of consumers wanting to put those solar panels on their roof or big companies wanting to set up big solar arrays, that's capitalism, man. Like That's, that's what it's all about. And that's what, how we see this transformation happen that quick. Yeah, I agree. Let's touch on nuclear power a bit, because like I mentioned, I had nuclear engineer Nick Turan on an earlier episode to discuss how amazing nuclear power truly is and how much we undervalue it in modern society. So I think I have a guess on on what some of ACC's thoughts on nuclear's role in our society should be based on the fact that it supported legislation that helped to fund modular nuclear reactors. But it seemed like in my discussion with Nick, there are a couple pretty big barriers around cost and regulation that are preventing nuclear from truly taking off. So is that something where you feel like the government should play a role in either incentivizing the reduction of cost through subsidies and eliminating red tape? Where do you feel the government's role would come in regarding nuclear technology? Sure. Well, generally, we're very supportive of nuclear and we follow the science on it. And I think that that should be the litmus test. I I think nuclear is a really interesting litmus test for climate activists, right? Because if you are very against nuclear and don't support it as part of climate solutions, that's anti-science. And if you're for it, that is following the science. And so that's that's a really interesting distinction that I've seen in the climate movement, because often that is a, a criticism leveled by folks you know, in the progressive climate movement about following the science. Anyways, in terms of what we can focus on, I'm really excited about small modular reactors. And you're seeing a lot of private sector leadership on this. You know, Obviously, Bill Gates is pouring a ton of money into TerraPower, which is this great company out in, in Washington state, which is doing some really exciting things there. I think there is a role for the government to play, particularly in next generation nuclear, like those small modular reactors. The red tape is definitely another area that we need to focus on. And that can be a little bit of a dicey topic, right? Because I think we all realize like, okay, we definitely want some regulations on nuclear. That's pretty, there's pretty serious consequences if that goes wrong. But one of the areas that we could focus on is sort of the permitting process. It can take a decade to permit a new nuclear plant. And that's a really important consideration, right? Because that makes it incredibly expensive. That's something that the government could work to streamline in order to expand our nuclear fleet. And I think that that's a really important thing for our our legislators to tackle so that we're not having the folks who are trying to build these reactors are not having to wade through that red tape because nuclear is a really important climate solution. It's a baseload energy and it's something that has the science behind it. I think most people who are really invested in uh, addressing this issue of climate change understand that it's, it's an important tool in our tool belt to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The conversation around nuclear and progressives, and whenever I say things like progressive or conservative, I'm speaking with broad brushes here, right? But anytime I hear progressives fight against the adoption of nuclear technology, it really kind of reminds me how the word science or the phrase follow the science is oftentimes used as a bludgeon rather than a statement of fact. Because I think, as you rightly said, following the science and how energy efficient and how safe nuclear technology truly is when you compare it to even things like wind and solar, following the science would lead you right down the path of nuclear. But you mentioned red tape. And I think that that brings us to what I feel is a tension that is kind of inherent between a small government or a limited government and environmental conservation. I mean, I come from a family of small business owners. I'm pro-capitalism in, you know, within reason, not pro-corporatism, but I think capitalism is the driving engine that makes America successful within reason. But private 
industry can and has cared about the environment because private companies are made up of people like you and I, and they have a variety of passions and causes that they care about. Like individuals have a variety of passions and causes that they care about. Some business owners are deeply invested in the environment, but others don't give a crap, right? Humans are diverse as history has shown us. So for every human motivated by profit and altruism, like environmental conservation, there are those that are going to be motivated more purely by profit without care for what may happen as they pursue their goals. This isn't some leftist talking point, as I'm sure you're sure you'd agree. It's it's human nature. So if not for Ulysses S. Grant, would we have national parks? If not for government-enabled activism of Teddy Roosevelt, would they be so robustly preserved, right? And a bipartisan group of presidents and, and legislatures from Wilson to FDR, Lincoln, Carter, Nixon, Obama, have led the government through action in preserving and protecting what we now see as Americans as kind of our national heritage. And if not for government action on preserving these lands, right? It's free real estate. So why wouldn't private companies have taken advantage and you know built corporations or wonderful hotels on Yellowstone, right? So I guess, and I keep returning to this point, but it's a tension that I've tried to resolve in my own mind because I don't want a government so powerful that it can control our lives. But I also understand that if human beings were left to just their own devices throughout all time, we wouldn't have some of the things that we really appreciate. So how do you, I mean, I'm guessing just speaking to you as Quill, because I don't want to speak to you just as a mouthpiece for ACC, is this a tension that you've also struggled with and how do you personally resolve it? Sure. Well, I guess I'll just, I'll, I'll start by saying I'm probably top 10 biggest fans of, of our national parks in the US. Probably one of my favorite things in the world is America's national parks. And I think that that's such an important part of our legacy as Americans. I'm so grateful that President Grant and then, you know, uh, President Roosevelt built on that and that that's a legacy that we that endures in the United States. It's interesting because I think that this actually ties into people's perhaps misperceptions of how we can protect and conserve our land. Because who says that we have to make land public or in the, the, the care of the government in order to protect it? And I'll, I'll bring this down to a particular example back in my home state. And so forest fires are, are a big problem in all over the West Coast, but particularly also in Washington state. And I actually got to visit a forest that was private working land. So it was run by a forestry company, which harvests this timber. That's that they're driven by profit. But actually, the forests that they tend to and that they harvest from are better kept and less prone to have wildfires than the Bureau of Land Management um, land, which is adjacent from that. And that's actually because they have a profit motive and it's in their interest to take care of that land and make sure it doesn't go up in flames every single year. And so I think that that's, that's sort of a specific example of it, but it goes back to who says the only way to protect land is to put it in the trust of folks in Washington, D.C. And I think that for me, that goes back to this really basic thing that for, for me, environmentalism is not necessarily, it's not like a political statement. It's, a, it's an urge that most people have, I think everybody has in them, that the land where we are from is something that we want to take care of and pass on to future generations. And it's in our interest to not dump toxic waste in our backyards. Obviously, there are plenty of examples of, of, of businesses and individuals who do not have, apparently do not have that urge, but I don't think we should discount the fact that conservation urges within many of us and that actually profit and conservation often align. And so you also have examples of large environmental organizations like the Nature Conservancy, which cares for large swaths of land and in in land in the United States. That's not public land, but it's private land. And often it is actually cared for better than some of our public lands. All of this is to say is that, you know, I think that it's, it's vital that we protect our national parks. There's a lot that can be done to improve the state of other public lands. And, you know, being from the West, you can appreciate that the fact that there are large, large swaths of public of public lands in places like Utah and Nevada and that sort of thing that people sometimes look at those and say, look, that land is actually not taken care of that well by the U.S. government. So I think that we need to we need to make that distinction that the only way to care for land is by giving it to the government. And that is actually in the interest of many businesses and organization, non-governmental organizations and individuals to take care of that land. Hmm. Principally, I agree. Of course, individuals and private companies can and do, I mean, history is rife with examples, can take care of things and can hand things down through the generations. I think there's a what, a restaurant in Japan that's like 1,500 years old or something. So that's not impossible, right? But 
if it's left to private hands, of course, there's also the potential that either like a business, let's say, that one of their sons or daughters or inheritors or what have you will run it into the ground or that eventually someone will sell it off, right? So how do we, when it comes to private ownership and private stewardship of land, one, can we force them to allow anyone to go on that land and enjoy it like we can with public parks? And two, what's to prevent someone who comes along Let's take you, right? Let's say Quill Robinson has a plot of land and then you pass away at the ripe old age of 110, right? But then your great, great granddaughter's like, screw this, I want to go to the casino and just sells it. So I guess my my question is, is how do we resolve that when it comes to private ownership? Again, in principle, I'm with you there, but I see potential problems. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think that we want to make sure that people have a direct vested interest in caring for that land. And, you know, my limited government preference and my observations of sort of examples of this tell me that when you have people who are there, who are on that land, who are closer to it, that they actually have a stronger vested interest in making sure that it's well-maintained. Now, I'm not someone who I'm a strong supporter of our public lands, but again, like looking at some Western states where you have up to 80 or 90% of the state in the federal trust. And often that limits what people can do on that land, like grazing their their cattle, which is not necessarily environmentally destructive and can be done in very sustainable ways. That that the fact that that's quote unquote protected by the, the federal government actually inhibits the ability of the people who are on that land to use it for productive or for productive purposes that are in line with our conservation goals. And so, I mean, there's a million different examples that we can go into here, but I think that, you know, there's this perception that the only again i think it, it, we need to break this perception that the only way to ensure environmental sustainability is to put it in the trust of people who live 2000 miles away and don't necessarily know the the reality of the on the ground yeah i think that's a good point i mean i'm personally of the idea that local government governs best because the local government understands the needs and wants and desires and livelihoods of its local citizens slightly off topic but are you familiar with the work of michael schellenberger i am yeah Yeah, he kind of sprung to mind while you were talking because last summer, while there were fires ravaging California, I was talking with a lot of my friends here in Los Angeles who, it's Los Angeles, so most of them were liberal. And endlessly, I just heard about, you know, climate change, climate change, climate change. These fires wouldn't be here if not for climate change. And of course, that's partially true. I was reading the some of the work of Michael Schellenberger on this exact topic. I think he probably went through a similar journey to you. He saw himself kind of squarely on the left in the early 2000s and has now rethought some of his stances. But he made the great point that maybe 10 or 15% of the fires that were ravaging California were due to climate change, right? They made the fires more intense and 10 to 15% more likely to happen. But a lot of that was just really poor stewardship on behalf of the California government. They weren't doing controlled burns in the forests for many, many years. So you had all this dry timber that was building up that basically made California forests a tinderbox for wildfires. And I think oftentimes a lot of this just gets completely obscured in this binary thinking. I think you really nailed it on the head, whether it's public or private, really good stewardship is important. And when stewardship is not respected, things like this can happen, private or public. Does that sound right? Yeah, completely. And I'm really glad that you brought up the the, the point of the forest fires, right? Because I think that that's, some, that's one of the challenges of climate change. And like I said, like that's climate change is my big issue. It's something that I care a lot about. But often, and that was, that was a, a particular example of when people sort of blur the lines between climate change and other environmental issues. And there are ways that they intersect, of course, but it just is not scientifically accurate to attribute a hurricane or a wildfire to climate change. Climate change, you know, according to the science, exacerbates those things. It's, it, it doesn't create them. And yeah, I mean, in, in that case, us lowering our greenhouse gas, you know, if, if California radically lowered its greenhouse gas emissions over the next couple of years, that would not stop the wildfires. And if we're trying, if our goal is to stop the wildfires, we need better forest management. And that actually kind of goes back to the point around having better stewardship and more localized direction on on how we do that effectively. But that's a difficult thing for people to, to wrap their heads around is that there are other environmental issues that we need to address through good stewardship. And we also need to address this issue of climate change, but that climate change is not this all encompassing environmental issue that by reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we can solve all of these other ones. Is that something that ACC is currently pursuing or thinking of pursuing in that 
and I think this could probably get bipartisan support, the idea of holding local and state politicians accountable for when they fail us in regards to things like wildfires, for instance, and educating the public on what is causing those wildfires. Because every, I mean, I'm just one guy. Every single time I tried to convince one of my friends that one of the reasons these wildfires was happening was just complete neglect on behalf of, of state politicians and unelected officials who should have been responsible for keeping those forests responsibly curated, let's say, for lack of a better word. I wish that there were organizations, and perhaps ACC is pursuing this, that would try and hold these people accountable and elect people who would be better stewards of the environment. Is that something that ACC is interested in? Certainly. I mean, and that's something that we definitely have written op-eds on and and have done education on is, is trying to add some nuance to that conversation. And I mean, I actually, you know, it's funny because there is a bipartisan bill that was introduced last Congress to improve forest management. It was from Senator Dianne Feinstein and Senator Danes from Montana, like far left Democrat, pretty hard right Republican working together on this issue of forest management. But somehow the sort of public conversation on those wildfires was all about climate change and it was not exactly scientifically accurate. That also goes back to sort of our focus on localism, subsidiarity. When you have people who live 10 minutes away who are accountable for these environmental issues and stewardship and you can hold them accountable, that's a lot easier to do than someone who lives in Washington, D.C. And that's that's why that subsidiarity point and why that localism point is so important is, like you said, you know, you try, local government is a lot easier to hold accountable. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely something that we're pursuing both through education and then working on policy solutions that can better address these sorts of issues. Yeah, I think that's well said. This next question is going to require a little bit of runway. It's it's about a video that you made or released a part of for ACC last year. And it was kind of touching on the commonalities between COVID and our desperate need to fight climate change. So if it just allow me here, I just need to set the stage a little bit. In that video, you were discussing one of ACC's key initiatives, which is the American Climate Contract. And you said that for Americans to tackle climate change, we need to find common ground by, quote, making the consequences clear to Americans on a personal level, end quote. You referenced, like I mentioned, our current public health crisis with COVID as an example, citing, quote, how people in the U.S. and around the world have shown an amazing sense of solidarity and collective action, a willingness to band together to avert catastrophe. End quote. You go on to say that, quote, if we truly want to rally the American people around a solution that will improve all of our lives, we need to explain the problem at a personal level. We need to present solutions that make sense to everyone. End quote. Now, on a broad level, I completely agree with you. The only way we can tackle such a monumental issue like climate change is through collective action. We can't just all of us do it ourselves. We need to band together. But I wonder if, based simply on human psychology works, if the private market and private citizens in general, if they can be incentivized to act on threats that aren't immediate. So if we take COVID, for instance, right, the example that you used in the video, our government was warned by experts in the field for years that it was only a matter of time until a global pandemic struck. Our world was too interconnected, they said. Viruses were going to spread quickly and globally. We had SARS, MERS, H5N1, all within the last two decades as omens for things that were yet to come. And yet the American government was completely blindsided and caught off guard by COVID. We can see the lesson repeat itself throughout history, right? The federal government and the Louisiana government were warned for decades about the inadequacy of the New Orleans levees, but nobody appreciated the warnings until Hurricane Katrina showed that those warnings weren't heeded. So I guess my larger point, and I appreciate you giving me the time to elaborate on this, is we humans tend to be really terrible at preparing for catastrophic events when they're abstract and not immediate. And yes, we might be having more hurricanes or slightly more intense fires, but how can we alter the course of climate change if, based on humanity's track record, we won't be reacting to it until Seattle's already a desert? Yeah, I mean, climate change is almost like some evil economics professor cooked it up for a particularly hard econ exam for his students. It, you know, it's a collective action, action problem. There's a delayed response to it. You know, it's int- intensely politically charged. So it's it's certainly a difficult one. And yeah, I mean, this has been sobering seeing our response, our delayed response to, to COVID. I'll just tell you a, a quick story to illustrate, you know, one of the points that I think is really important here, and that's that's messaging on climate change. So before COVID, back last February, I, I flew to, to Iowa and spoke to a group of young Republicans in Ames, Iowa. And it was it was like more MAGA hats than you've ever seen before, like uniformly, all all 
Trump, very, very strong Trump supporters in a very conservative part of our country. And I got up there and I talked about climate change for 20 minutes. You'd probably guess that that's like not the best audience to do that in front of. But I was really pleasantly surprised because at the end of it, a lot of people came up and approached me and said, yeah, we're, we're Christians. Like many of us are in the agricultural sector. Of course, we care about being good stewards of the environment. And we've, we've seen some of the effects of, of the greenhouse effect. And so I think the messaging on climate change is incredibly important and who is talking about it. And I know that this is sort of like a tired criticism that's been brought up for a long time, but it really does matter that John Kerry and Al Gore are flying around in private jets talking about how we need to lower our greenhouse gas emissions. You know, I'm again, I'm culturally from Seattle. I'm from a progressive place. I went and saw an inconvenient truth when I was like 10 years old with my family. But from what I've heard and from listening to, you know, many of our activists who are part of ACC and many of my friends who come from more conservative areas of the country, it really, really irks them when those people are the messengers on this issue. And that's had a lasting effect. And so I think what we need to do is change the messengers. And that's part of ACC's goal is to be an authentic, you know, an authentic voice that respects and understands and can speak to folks on the right of center about this issue. And we also need, I think the other part here is aligning incentives. I think a a lot of often climate change is framed as we are going to have to sacrifice economically and in other ways in order to address this issue and to a degree that, that is, that's true. But I think there are a lot of things that we can do which will create both economic and environmental prosperity. And I think that's something that we need to focus on to get our messaging better is, you know, this is a, a serious threat that we need to address, but we need to lean in, lean in on these opportunities that are actually going to make our lives better not just environmentally, but economically and create new jobs and that sort of thing. And I'm actually pretty encouraged by some of the way that President Biden has framed some of this because tying it together and saying, look, this is an opportunity to create new clean energy jobs and green jobs and that sort of thing is the right way to do it. And so I think that it's, you know, it's aligning incentives and saying, look, this is not only, you're not only doing this for the good of the planet, but this is in your economic interest. And then also switching up some of these messengers and understanding that a lot of the folks who have been the go-to messengers on climate change are actually having sort of a counterproductive effect on the people that we need to win over on this issue. I have seen how some people on the left will talk down to people on the right about a whole host of issues. And I can understand how that can be really grating and demoralizing when someone isn't talking to you like an equal, like a human being, but as someone that they feel is below them, which I think is a total non-starter. So I think that your point about people needing to hear about important issues from their own quote unquote team or from their own side. I think that's valuable. But if conservatives need to hear about climate change from fellow conservatives, or let's say conservative sympathetic speakers, if conservatives care about preserving the environment, which I know that they do, I have family members who are conservative, who like hunting, who like preserving the environment, who have acres of land that they care for deeply, who don't want to see it disappear. So I know that they care. I know it on a personal level. But where has everyone been? Why did it take ACC? an organization that I'm glad that it exists now, but where was everyone before ACC? And why do you feel like there might've been a vacuum of conservative voices before an organization like ACC came about? Yeah, that is a, I'll try to give you the short answer on that one, because that is a, a long, long history of a lot of different events that sort of led to the point where we're at today. But just quickly, the conservation president, Teddy Roosevelt, Republican, the guy who created the EPA, Richard Nixon, Republican, the man who signed the Montreal Protocol, huge environmental step forward. That was Ronald Reagan. Clean Air Act updates. That was H.W. Bush. Like That's the important thing. And that's what I always start with when I'm talking to folks who strongly identify with the Republican Party is like, look, this is actually our issue. Conservation, conservative, there's a common root there. This is part of our philosophy is conserving what we have and making sure that future generations get to benefit from this land and from these resources. That's that's one. In terms of how we got here, I think that when this issue of climate change sort of came onto the national stage, you had messengers, you had the former Democratic VP of the country and then Democratic candidate in, in Al Gore in 2000. He was the messenger. And so there's a cultural divide there. And then from my understanding, a lot of big environmental groups, sort of the, the ones that you think of when you think of big environmental groups, they made a conscious decision sort of in the, in the 2000s era to support Democrats and not give a lot of credit to the Republicans who were actually doing good work on these issues. And so there was sort of a not a strong incentive for Republicans to engage on environmental issues. And that had an effect. And I think you, you've probably you've probably seen this with 
lots of different organizations that are nominally focused on one issue, but then increasingly they engage on other issues. And that had an effect. Those big green organizations were not supporting Republicans who were good on the environment because of their stances on other issues. And then also, I think that, you know, there was just an incentive with the you know, or there was a there was a, a concentrated effort on you know some bad actors in the energy industry to tamp down on the science, and they, you know, had a strong relationships with the Republican Party, and that was incredibly unfortunate. But I'm really optimistic. I've been you know ACC has existed for three and a half years. I really believe that we've seen the center of gravity shift within the Republican Party and within the conservative movement on this issue. The American Climate Contract, which is something that I worked on a lot, sort of my baby over the last um, last year and a half is a platform that says climate change is real. We need to address it. And here are four different areas that we need to focus on in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and prepare these communities for change. And it outlines some specific policies that we can be focusing on. That was supported by many of the highest ranking Republicans in the House of Representatives. We've worked with a lot of you know very influential Republicans in the Senate as well on these bills that are lowering greenhouse gas emissions. And so I think particularly over the last year and a half, despite <laughs> former President Trump's backwards position on this issue, I've seen a lot of stuff happen in the last year and a half that really encourages me that this is becoming a less partisan issue. And the difference is now over how to address it, not if we should address it. Let's talk a little bit more about the American climate contract, because I want to hear your thoughts on it. As you mentioned, you've been deeply involved with it. So what are the four pillars that you mentioned and how does it differentiate itself from, let's say, the Green New Deal, which takes up a lot of oxygen in the room around this discussion? Sure. Well, the American climate contract is about climate change. That's its focus. The goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and prepare communities for change. We're not working on healthcare. We're not working on education. We're not working on a whole host of other issues, which are worthy issues that people should be focusing on. But as an environmental organization and as a climate platform, it's focused on climate change. And so that's the first thing. The four categories are energy innovation. So we actually kind of checked off in a big way with the Energy Act of 2020, that first category, which we basically say that we need to invest in energy innovation and create a, a thriving competitive environment for different energy sources to to take off and to lower those emissions and, and offset more traditional energy sources. The second is uh, 21st century infrastructure. So that's upgrading our infrastructure from our energy grid to EV charging stations, to coastal mitigation and barriers and the sort of things that would, that would help protect these communities from the effects of climate change. That's going to be a big target for us coming up with the, you know, the expected infrastructure package. And then the third is natural solutions. And that's something that I'm personally really excited about because I think it's something that a lot of people do not realize. You know, there's a big focus on energy sector emissions and how we can reduce fossil fuels. But what's really cool is that actually you've, you've heard of carbon capture, right? Like they're developing these machines right now to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Trees and plants are actually carbon capture machines themselves, which I just think is the coolest thing. And so when a tree grows, it sequesters carbon from the atmosphere. And so by planting more trees and um, having these healthier ecosystems and, and growing ecosystems, we can sequester a lot of that carbon from the atmosphere. So that's the, the third pillar. And there's a lot of legislation and things that we're working on in that space. And then the fourth, fourth is global engagement, because something that you know we often forget in this conversation is that the US only represents about 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So even if we turned off our economy completely, climate change would still be a problem. And so that's focused on how we can export those technologies and share practices with countries around the world to address this global challenge of climate change. Yeah, that all makes sense to me. All pretty reasonable, Quill. Pretty reasonable. Sorry, that's our plan. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got I've got a few questions left before we get to our final question, which I ask every guest. This is another one that's going to kind of require a little bit of, of runway. What I'm trying to do with this conversation, and I'm thankful that you're allowing me to kind of ask these rather oppositional questions because I think they're important. And I think that you've provided some really great answers. So last year, your, I believe, former ACC National Policy Director, Nick Lindquist, discussed ACC's mission during an appearance on a local Fox affiliate, KWKT where he stated that carbon emissions are down over 13% since 2007. And based on my research, it may even be more than that, could be anywhere from 15 to almost 20%, which is a not insignificant decline to be sure. But I looked at what the main reasons for this decline were, and I kept coming back to two main causes. One, a seismic shift from coal to natural gas, and two, the 2008 financial crisis that cratered the American economy. So 
assuming that you and I agree on these causes. And if you disagree with me, I'd love to hear why. But I have two questions if we do agree. Per the American government's own website, which is the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the switch from coal to natural gas was driven by several factors, low natural gas prices, more efficient natural gas turbine technology, and stricter emission standards. So in a significant way, and we've touched on this a little bit, so I may be able to anticipate your answer here, but would the market have been incentivized to transition from coal to natural gas without government mandate? And then the second question is, many conservatives and centrists and center-left liberals are concerned about the economic impact of something like the Green New Deal, right? Which is the the classic line being, (laughs) it's easy to have zero emissions when you no longer have an economy. And you kind of touched on this, you know, you could shut the entire American economy off and we still wouldn't be taking a huge bite out of climate change. But if a significant portion of our recent emission reductions have come about as a result of a financial meltdown, why is it used as evidence of progress rather than evidence of the result of economic devastation? Sure. Well, I think that, you know, the first part there brings up, you know, an important point for me that's a bit more philosophical of why do we want to address this issue of climate change, right? For me, it's because I want a future for our planet and also that I want, you know, my future children to be able to live on a healthy planet and prosper and for future generations to enjoy the things and and, and live a a thriving life. And so we could, I, I think that that it brings up an interesting point where it's like, what cost are we willing to pay to address climate change? There are some incredibly draconian things that we could do that would quite quickly lower our greenhouse gas emissions that would absolutely not be worth it. And I think that that's an important point is we don't want to address climate change at any cost. There are things that we should not be willing to do in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So that's sort of like a philosophical point that I think is kind of an interesting thing to bring up as we're having these discussions. Like, are we willing to make people suffer? Are we willing to bring the economy to a standstill? Are we willing to put spend $93 trillion of our kids' money in order to address climate change? And my answer is no there. But to the other point of this, Yeah. I mean, and that's sort of an interesting thing too, is that in a way, fracking has been one of the best things to happen for addressing climate change. That's just a fact is that because of the the shale boom and the natural gas boom in the United States, that we saw a rapid transition away from coal and towards natural gas and natural gas burns 50% cleaner than coal does. So, and I I think this, this goes back to sort of the discussion around incrementalism versus all or nothing, all or nothing. I'm not super confident that in 150 years, we'll be using natural gas to power uh, different things in our economy. But right now, the progress that we've made in terms of emissions reductions because of natural gas is something that we should celebrate. And I think that banning natural gas or banning fracking would hurt the continuation of that trend. That's looking at the, the, the science and what has happened there. That's pretty clear to me. And so I think that's another one sort of like nuclear where, okay, you want to stop all fracking. That's actually not very scientific. That's kind of my thoughts on those two points there. Yeah. I mean, I think that natural gas, while it has its own issues, I mean, I don't think that any energy solution is completely free of any potential second and third order consequences. I think it gets a bit of a bad rap there. But I just want to circle back to that point of, again, according to the US government's own website about what caused the rise of natural gas, it's not that the government forebode coal but they did enact really strict regulations that caused a lot of coal producing companies to begin looking elsewhere for energy production, profits, et cetera. And so to your point about how if we shut down natural gas all of a sudden, which I agree would be not a good idea, it wouldn't necessarily lead to more innovation, but the government's own statistics seem to say that it's restrictions on coal production and the standard of coal production caused the ascendance of natural gas. So I'm only posing this question to you in the spirit of of wanting to fully understand, which is, couldn't someone say to you, Quill, or someone interested in natural gas or understanding that natural gas has a part to play, well, if the government came in and restricted coal and that led to natural gas, couldn't the government come in and restrict natural gas and lead us to something better? You know, I, I think that the answer is that it has more to do with the geology of the United States than a particular regulation that was enacted. I mean, there was steps taken in late in the, the Bush administration that made it easier and allowed for the technology of fracking to flourish. And we had a boom in terms of natural gas, and this was an abundant resource. And so regulation may absolutely have, sure, played a role in, in that. But the fact that there is an abundance of natural gas in the United States and that we discovered the technology to take advantage of that is why that happened, not just because of regulation that clamped down on coal. 
there were a bunch of different factors that led to this. I think that's a, I think that's an excellent point. Before we close out, you know, because <laughs> you've been fielding a lot of my questions, and I think rather well, I want to just give you the opportunity to talk about anything that you're passionate about related to ACC or the environment or climate change that you don't feel has been addressed in any of your responses here, whether it's things that ACC plans for the future or just environmental topics that are really important to you. I just want to give you a platform to discuss them since you've been so generous in responding to my questions. Sure. Well, thank you. And I, I've, I've really enjoyed your questions. And I think that we touched on earlier, it's, it's so important to have these cross-partisan, cross-ideology discussions, particularly on a topic like the climate that is so important. And it's actually one of my favorite things to walk into a room and say, I'm, you know, I'm conservative and I care so much about climate change and it's something that I want to address. Let's talk. I think that one of the things that I'm really interested in right now that the Biden administration has been talking about is this idea of a just transition and how we are going to support communities that are economically disadvantaged or historically disadvantaged as we address this issue of climate change. And I think that that often comes up, particularly with minority communities in urban areas. And I think that that's so important that we're, we're addressing that. And I'm glad that that's part of the discussion. But I also want to apply that lens. And this is just one of, you know, since you, you, since you uh, brought it up, this is one of my pet interests right now is how are we going to support those communities that have traditionally relied on fossil fuels and make sure that they are supported through the transition in the economy that is happening? So, you know, something that I've heard a lot from, you know, friends who are, who are from West Virginia, or other places that have been, you know, traditionally reliant on fossil fuels or coal or something like that is that, you know, it's not so much that they're against acting on climate change is that again, going back to that earlier point that the messengers have seemingly looked down on those communities. And so I think that as we're considering what the strength just transition looks like, I really hope that folks on the left are willing to listen to the voices of, of the people in those communities who are going to be most affected by this transition. And also understand that it's not necessarily uh, an opposition to sustainability or caring for the environment, but it's a mistrust of who the messengers have been. And I think that actually, you know, and I hope that President Biden is able to, to live up to his words of, of speaking about unity. But I hope that there is an opportunity to come together and, and to listen to those communities and make sure that that is an authentically just transition and not something that is just conceived of in Washington, D.C. or in a place like Seattle, where I'm from, but actually comes out of really good conversations and consulting with those people who are in those communities. I think so much of what this conversation has kind of revolved around is the idea that people on both the left and importantly, the right care about this topic. What can so often get lost is how messaging is so important in being able to activate and bring people in to talk about a topic that they care about, right? And if the wrong messenger goes to a community and addresses them in a wrong way, a way that might feel dehumanizing. I found that whole learn to code that was a couple years ago, you know, oh, you're grew up in a coal mining country and you've seen your small town devastated by the shuttering of plants, just learn to code. I'm like, uh, okay. I mean, the idea that someone should be able to transition from one economy to another isn't a crazy idea. Obviously, People used to raise horses for people to ride around because there weren't cars and then cars came around and people had to adapt. That's not a controversial idea, but you wouldn't tell someone learn to code as cars were destroying the horse industry. <laughs> so I feel like there's so much cruelty in the way that we talk to one another. So I suppose my second to last question, because you know, the last question is coming. The second to last question is how can people on the right and the left, people from the ACC and the Sierra Club come together? to foster solutions that everyone cares about? And how can we bridge the divide so that we use kinder language in pursuing those solutions? Yeah, that's that's so incredibly important. And I just, one, one thing that keeps on sticking in my head. So I was here in DC when the, the insurrection and the storming of the Capitol happened a couple of weeks ago. And actually, you know, I'm about an eight minute walk south of the Capitol. And so that's something that's very much still on my mind. And I just remember watching this one clip where this young man who, who'd come out of the Capitol said, they don't care about us. They're not listening to us, but now they have to. And I think that, that's, that really struck me. It struck me about this moment that we're in and, and that I'm very worried about sort of the populist sentiment on the both the left and the right in our country right now. And that's not really where I'm oriented in terms of my politics. But I think that on this issue of climate change, but also just in our, our political discussions more generally, and as we're trying to figure out these important problems you know, around climate change and the transition of the economy and that sort of thing, is understanding that there's a large swath of the population. There are a lot of people who probably you know, often don't live in places like Seattle or Washington, D.C., where I've lived in my life, who don't feel listened to. 
And at least, you know, for my part in discussions around climate, I've found that really starting with personal narrative and explaining where you come from, rather than jumping to the contentious issue or trying to own somebody on on their backwards position on nuclear and how that doesn't make sense on the science, you know, something along those lines. I think it's so important to start from where we come from and what we believe in rather than jumping to the contentious issue itself and trying to make the other person look stupid. Because I think that that's what that learn to code, you know, thing feels like. It feels like dismissive and like you don't care and you're not listening to those people. So yeah, starting starting from where you're coming from. I think that that's a really important thing. That is so well said. Fostering an environment in which we can be vulnerable with one another is so key because oftentimes anger, whether it's coming from someone who identifies on the right or the left, the great grandson of a coal miner in West Virginia or a Sierra Club activist in California, the things that drive us are deeper than just the things that we're passionate about. And if we're vulnerable enough to talk about what our fears are, right? Like, I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to provide for my family, and that terrifies me. Or I'm afraid that I'm not going to have a state around to give to my grandchildren because it'll be burned to the ground from climate change, right? If we can talk about the vulnerabilities that drive why we act the way that we do, I think like you just excellently excellently said, we can get to solutions that benefit all of us. But until we allow ourselves to be vulnerable with one another about what our actual fears are, we can't really get to that place, you know? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's why, you know, when I'm having conversations with, you know, folks who are more on the left of center, that's why I start with saying that I was raised by hippies and I went to the farmer's market and listened to NPR growing up. And I'm from Seattle, Washington. That's why I start with that. Like, let's start, let's establish a little bit of common ground here, or perhaps disarm some of their perceptions of where I'm, where I'm coming from as a, as a conservative and then move to the, you know, move to the solutions part. Because yeah, I think that the tribal sentiment right now is, is very, very strong and people are very scared. And I, I mean, we, we saw this, we've seen this reflected over the last couple of months. And I, you know, for, for my part, for folks who are on the conservative movement, we saw people saying it's the end of America if President Trump loses. And that, that played a role in what, in what happened. And so our fears are, are very visceral and intense right now. And so as we're having these conversations and trying to solve these really important issues, we definitely have to be vulnerable, share our fears, and establish that common ground before we can get to the solutions. In the spirit of that sentiment, I'm going to pose the final question, which I ask to every guest, to you. We're limited as individuals in all sorts of ways. As you know, we're limited in our time, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person, and you seem to be on that list, can't be thinking of everyone else, every group of people all the time. It's just impossible. So, Quill, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now, abstract or concrete? that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to offer empathy to all the the young people, particularly the teenagers who've gotten out on the streets and they've been striking or protesting because of climate change because they're afraid that, you know, they're not going to grow up in a planet that is uh, healthy or livable. And so I want to offer my my empathy to them and understand their their concern and say I'm, you know, for for my part I'm trying my best to 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 get us closer to those solutions that are going to protect our, our planet and make sure that, that they and their kids and all of our future generations are going to have a, a habitable planet to live on. Quill, thank you again for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you for the work that you're doing on the environment so that we can leave an environment for our children and grandchildren to come. I really appreciate it. And I think it's really important that people on both sides of the aisle are tackling this issue. So thank you for the work that you're doing and for the work that ACC at large is doing. Thank you. 